0: Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 61, Robert Anderson's Opening Pandora's Box, Syphilis in Whitechapel, 1888. I'm Jonathan Mangus and this is a first for RipperCast. What we have to present to you today in this show is the audio recording of the talk that Robert Anderson gave to the Whitechapel Society 1888 conference in Salisbury just this past month. As the title suggests, his talk focused on tertiary syphilis in the East End of London, a late Victorian age, and he also touched on the possibilities that some of the victims and suspects could have been stricken by the illness. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Robert Anderson and Salisbury.
1: That magic that we got nobody can touch Looking for some trouble
2: Uh, <laughs> any questions we'd like to give profound thanks to Patience C who has shared with us his battles with tertiary syphilis uh, which as we know in its last phases can cause garrulous talk, uh, random threats uh, potential violence <laughs> And uh, what we call word salad, which is a tremendous amount of postings that really make very little sense. Uh, But but we're we're working with him, and we're we're all praying for his recovery. Uh, Toys. What's a conference without toys? Uh, All right, this is an American urethral irrigator. This is a British one. (laughs) Actually, actually, I'm messing with you. They're both American because the truth is, what I've learned is that Victorian era British medical devices are popular in Japan as sex toys. So they go for three, four, five times the price of the American equivalent, which are also fine sex toys. I wasn't sure to bring this, and it just dawned on me that it's perhaps uh, some men have never seen a speculum, uh, or certainly not been, hopefully, on the receiving end of one. Uh, this is a vaginal speculum, and this is an anal speculum, uh, which actually is British-Victorian era, uh, and we don't have time to get into it, but arguing... <laughs> <laughs> Mercifully, uh, but it can be argued that uh, feminist outrage at forced vaginal uh, and rectal examination of prostitutes uh, led, I would say, to the acceleration of movements for women's suffrage. And that outrage at the uh, what's called the uh, mm-hmm. physician's penis, as well as their husbands bringing syphilis home to them, I think actually, you know, uh, helped. Uh, accelerate the push for women's suffrage in, in Great Britain. So uh, there we go. And Lindsay gave me a Valentine's meat juice bottle, which has nothing to do with syphilis, but it would have been nice to have at York. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Syphilis in Whitechapel, 1888. Uh, the theory that the Ripper was a syphilitic is literally as old as the case itself. In fact, it was proposed... Oh, that's one thing I forgot. These are, these are the glasses that a syphilitic would have worn because their pupils don't react properly to light. And it just so happens that whoever poor soul owned this, their reading prescription is exactly mine.
1: <laughs> so,
2: so, yeah, uh, it, was, it was meant to be. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the theory that the Ripper was a syphilitic literally as old as the case itself. In fact, it was proposed even before Mary Jean Kelly was butchered. It doesn't get much discussion anymore, and I think that might be an error. The heart of the problem, in my humble opinion, is that the disease of 2014 isn't the disease of 1888. It's curable and not nearly as virulent and destructive. It's hard for us to envision the pain and suffering syphilis could cause its victims, how utterly one's life could be ruined by just one injudicious night. The saying was, an evening with Venus, a lifetime with Mercury. It was unfortunately all too accurate. And having forgotten what syphilis was all about, we have also forgotten about one of its tertiary complications, neurosyphilis, which is also known as general paralysis of the insane, and it could bring about radical changes in personality as well as violent outbursts. Several ripper suspects, like Deeming and Cutbush, were known syphilitics, and I would like to suggest that several others, like Kuzminski, may have been as well but I'm not interested in known suspects as much as I am in what type of man Jack the River might have been, what may have motivated him to commit his horrible crimes. And I would also like to discuss what impact syphilis may have had on his victims and the women of Whitechapel in general, because the complications syphilis killed more innocents, as well as the not so innocent than the river ever did in his wildest fantasies. From the Illustrated Police News, January twentieth, 1883. From the evidence given by the most eminent surgeons before the Royal Commission, there could be no doubt that three-fourths of our criminals, paupers, and lunatics were the offspring of civilized parents, unable from their weak intellects and enfeebled constitutions to compete with the healthy in any form. They were driven to crime and beggary. In the Army and Navy, the curse was fearful. It was proved that half our soldiers and sailors were, or had been, afflicted with syphilis, and it was shown that the constitution of the victims was so utterly destroyed as to render them totally unfit for service. To such an extent was syphilis now raging in this country that from the fatal influence it spread exerted on the continent, England was called the Great Syphilitic Curse. I don't need to tell you the great ironies that countries name syphilis after their their political foes. You know, the Chinese called it Japanese fire, and you know, the English called it the French pox and the like. So uh, what do I really want to do today? What i really like to do is to move the needle from consideration of one reason to the victimology to a wider net. Why did Jack kill prostitutes? Ripperology 101, which we all learn, once upon we become little ripperologists, says that because they are easy prey, was it revenge instead? Was he diseased in the mind, not with schizophrenia, but with general paralysis of the insane. Let us realize that it was difficult to diagnose living patients back in 1888, and it will be impossible to diagnose a dead man after more than a century, but damn it, I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> what is syphilis? What are the stages of the disease? All right, this is, uh, you know, Katja, who did Yeoman work on, on, on the audiovisual, said, like, never put up a slide with a lot of material, which of course I'm doing. And, you know, to walk you through all the various symptoms, I mean, the shanker is, uh, you know, what happens about a couple weeks after you sleep with an infected person, uh, or have kissed an infected person, or for that matter, have shaken hands with somebody who's got a sore on their hands, uh, a shanker will develop. And the chancre will develop at the site of an infection. That word, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce, just means that your lymph nodes may become the size of apples. It's unpleasant. Uh... A month or so, Shankar heals, usually leaving no scar. And then about 25% of the victims move on to secondary syphilis, rash, fever, malaise. Again, the swollen lymph nodes. Uh, Mucus lesions, which we'll show you some nice examples of in a, in a moment. Uh, what in yeah. God's name is kind of in the water? I have that somewhere. Uh, bear with me. Oh, yes, uh, genital warts. Uh, alopecia, which means balding, so if you're balding, you know, you may, you know, I don't know, uh, costly, uh, meningitis, which are aware of, and headaches. So if any of you are balding and have a headache this morning, please see me after the conference. Uh, uh, a couple months after that, you go into a latent period. A latent period could last the rest of your life. If you're lucky, you show no signs of it. You are, however, infectious. Then about... of the secondary patients become tertiary. And that's where you move into what we call hitting the syphilitic jackpot, because depending upon where the spirochetes have gone to your heart, you could have cardiovascular complications, aortic aneurysm, aortic regurgitation, coronary artis, and that is hardening of the arteries, and we'll try to pronounce it. All right. Uh, Back in Victorian era when a doctor saw an aortic aneurysm or aortic valve problems I would say that they generally regarded that as an almost certain sign of tertiary syphilis uh, medical texts of the era would say you know anywhere between two thirds to 100% of the cases so if later uh, we see anything anointing to the aorta on any suspect uh, we have a good indication that they perhaps died of cardiovascular syphilis alright, neurosyphilis uh, why is this laser not working neurosyphilis uh, it will depend upon whether or not the spirochetes have concentrated in your spine or in your brain. If it's your brain, you will develop the general paresis, uh, which again is the general paresis of the insane, and prodome just means early symptoms, headache, vertigo, personality disturbances, followed by acute vascular event with focal findings. In other words, you're likely to drop dead of a heart attack. The nice thing about neurosyphilis is you can actually have all these at the same time. Uh, so, but, But tends to concentrate one. Tabes dorsalis is when the spirochetes have concentrated in your spine. Uh, this is something that I'm inclined to think might have been the case with uh, Mr. Kosminski, uh, where you have a sudden onset of dementia with a delusional state. Uh, typically, uh, victims will have grandiose thoughts. Uh, you know, his famous comment about knowing the movement of all mankind. Lightning pains, which are brutal, uh, Dysuria, uh, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly is uh, inability to empty your bladder and I read asylum records where one of their big fears with the uh, tertiary syphilitics was that they would fall out of bed and burst their bladders so yeah it wasn't it's not pretty uh, so uh, Argyle Robinson pupils are why I'm wearing these glasses Well no, I mean I don't have it but these are these glasses <laughs> <laughs> at least not that I'm aware of uh, you did clean these country, right? Uh, 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 it's because uh, the uh, victim's pupils don't adjust properly to light. Let me get back to something I can actually see. And finally, gamma. Gamma are, are best described as benign tumors and with a tremendous amount of destruction of tissue. Never, gamma? All right, yes. Now, uh, Yes. So, uh, these are also what's known as prostitutes' pupils. All right. All right we've covered it. that You can get it by kissing. Uh, let there be no mistake that at the heart of a discussion of venereal disease in the Victorian era
1: <laughs>
2: lies the issue of male sexual license. Men create demand for commercial sex, men are unfaithful, and men lie about sex. Sex workers fill the demand that men create. So please don't regard this talk as being disrespectful towards Jack's victims if I regard them as uh, having almost certainly been infected with syphilis or their fellow workers. A combination of male sexual license, the sorry state of property laws, divorce acts, uh, also helped create a, a rather prodigious supply of prostitutes to meet the demand that males have created. Uh, You may ask, uh, what happens if you came down with syphilis? How would they treat you? Uh, So we'll talk briefly about medicines used for syphilis in Victorian times. In a lot lot of cases, what you would receive in 1888 was much like 1588. Uh, if you want a complete list of the drugs Dr. Stewart syphilis in 1880, we need you'd, you'd look no further than the contents of James Maybrick's stomach, as by the end he had taken them all, but we'll talk about the, that in a moment. The weapons of choice were the heavy metals: mercury, potassium iodate, arsenic, strychnine, also known as nuxabometer, and later bromide. Uh, I must say that after looking at all the old medical texts, I actually have a lot of respect for these doctors groping in the dark for effective treatments for an incurable disease. These, I might add, they did not know the cause of. Mercury, while not a cure, did lower heat loads and lessens the, ability, the patient's ability to infect his sexual partners. I am deliberately using the language familiar to us from the AIDS epidemic because I would like you to think of the Victorian syphilis epidemic as the AIDS crisis of its day for the introduction of antiviral cocktails. If I was in 1888 and had syphilis, I would want a massive dose of mercury in as short a period of time as possible. Mercury tolerance was an issue, and some doctors would give it to their patients for years. Uh, There's more than a few British textbooks that recommend mercury treatments for up to five years, which cause your hair and teeth to fall out, along with massive amounts of saliva you would drool literally all day, uh, from which the term salivation which drive when it was in use in the 16th century. And there is, of course, the small matter of mercury being a neurotoxin. All of you have probably heard the expression, mad as a hatter. Salvasan was introduced in 1909, and hence outside the remit of our talk, and is commonly called the first chemotherapy. It was derived from arsenic, but obviously less toxic. And then penicillin was invented in 1943, which finally offered a cure. Now... One if you read Victorian literature for example, you'll never find any of the heroines have any you know any venereal disease of any sort. That's oh that's a, that's a gamma. And what we just had, which I talked over, was what happens when you have uh, you take yeah, that's uh, potassium iodate, which is one of the treatments for syphilis. If they gave you too much, this is what happens. So you can you know again. Is the cure as bad as the disease? We'll leave that for later discussion. All right. Uh, And that's Salversan, Ingented in, uh, I said, in 1909 by Germans. All right. Let's go on to code words. All right. As I was saying, you can search long and hard through Victorian literature, and you're never going to find anybody with... uh, venereal disease. It's always been darkly hinted at, you know, at best. Uh, you can argue that there's a syphilitic undertone to works such as Dracula and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, but there are code words that which should make our ears prick up whenever we read them. And when you show a list, and you'll notice more than a few of these actually kind of pop up in the Ripper case. Go. Yes, the evening. I like that's my that's my favorite. The evening retaining of soldiers. Rain's and sexual excess. Okay. I mean there there is there's a belief that excessive masturbation could cause syphilis. There's a belief that if your wife had too high a sex drive, she could actually transmit syphilis to you. Uh, uh, I don't know. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> I think the single worst thing I've read in the past 18 months,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and people ask, hey, what's the worst thing you've seen, uh, it was from the helpfully titled Syphilis and Marriage by the famous French syphologist Alfred Fournier, published in 1880. The French preferred to call ac- incidents of syphilis accidents, which I find charming. And Fournier spoke of men who had a syphilitic accident and then accidentally infected their unsuspecting wives. Fournier assures the reader that he would never betray the man's privacy and goes on to discuss how he'd give the wife a false diagnosis and have the pharmacy mislabel the prescribed medications. Yes. He speaks of the obligation to conceal from her the disease for which he treats her, saying it he takes an aplomb which can only gain by experience in years. However, he laughingly concludes that most wives are smart enough to see through the ruse, but then would wisely keep the family secret from others. His only regret is that the treatments were only short enough to absolve the husband from blame, and then he would see years later things like necrosis of the nasal bone. There was actually a no-nose club in London where noseless women could meet fetishists of the condition. We'll spare you the slides of uh, noseless people. All right. Uh, just receiving an initial diagnosis of syphilis required contact with a healthcare provider and presenting with active visual lesions or clear scars from the primary or secondary stage. We'll go into treatment options, the canonical five, would have faced in a moment. But let's just say that the odds of a Whitechapel resident receiving diagnosis and treatment were almost non-existent. And if they did, a healthcare provider might call it something else out of respect for families patient's family or spouse, and this particularly holds true on a death certificate and an autopsy report. One of the problems that we've had in trying to figure out just how many people had syphilis in 1888 is with doctors would not put it down on a death certificate. We'll they wouldn't put it down on a rich man's uh, death certificate, and they would not put it down on a pauper's either. It just really was considered the ultimate faux pas. And so the people, when you do read, like, this patient had syphilis, I mean, it meant that there was just no mistaking it, but generally, uh, it's, re- it's impossible to find di- you know, syphilis diagnosis on, on death certificates. Right. We are suggest- we're discussing sex crimes committed on sex workers, and we ignored sexual issues at our Pearl. To be an unfortunate, in Whitechapel, 1888, meant almost certain infection with a variety of venereal diseases, with syphilis having the deadliest consequences. If, and of course this is a big if, one believes Jack the Ripper utilized the services of prostitutes at some point in his life, the probability of him being infected rises dramatically. I would say to all of you that Whitechapel 1888 was burning with venereal disease to an extent we have politely demurred from speaking of, from chlamydia and general warts. The gonorrhea and syphilis. It is reasonable to assume as many as 25% of the men in 1888 suffered from the latter and had profound implications for infant mortality and life expectation in general. And we're going to go through the pattern of childbirths for Annie Chapman in a few minutes and you'll see what we believe syphilis basically did to her children. Uh, one of the one of the things we forget about is that one of the first theories ever proposed about Jack the Ripper, actually before the final murder in the sequence, was notions that the Ripper was syphilitic. Uh, Dr. D.G. Halstead was a physician at the London Hospital in Whitechapel during the Autumn of Terror. More importantly, to our point of view, in his 1959 autobiography, he wrote... I believe that Jack the Ripper was a victim of that dreaded disease, syphilis, for which a slow and not very effective course of mercury and iodine was then the only treatment we had. So I used to imagine the half-crazed sufferer, his bones being gnawed away by this terrible ailment, determining to avenge himself on the class of women for whom he had caught it. I believe there was wisdom in these comments. Archibald Forbes. A British war correspondent for the Daily News wrote a letter to the paper right after the double event, which deserves greater scrutiny. Mr. Forbes died of paralysis himself, so he may have known that of which he spoke of. This is a letter to the Daily News dated October 3rd, 1888. We're just taking a small snippet from it, where he says, The man's physical health ruined and his career broken. He has possibly suffered specific brain damage as well. Anyhow, he is mad, and his mania, rising from the particular to the general, takes the fell form of revenge against the class, a member of which has brought him his blighting hurt, against to the persons of that class plying in Whitechapel, since it was from a Whitechapel loose woman that he took his scave. A wounded wild beast crunches the spear that has stricken him. Interestingly, the star on October 6th, a few days later, printed a response that may be the origin of the mad doctor theory and the fanciful Dr. Stanley theory proposed by Leonard Mathers in 1926. In the event that the subject of syphilis has not been in front and the center of your minds, and I can't imagine why that would be, he, Dr. Stanley is a doctor who was supposed to be slaughtering the canonicals in revenge for Mary Kelly, having infected his promising young surgeon's son in 1886. And there are other newspaper articles of the time that hint darkly of syphilis. Of all of them, this next one I think is the most interesting. It's from the Duluth Daily News of November 13, 1888. At the inquest of the body of the Kelly woman today, a witness identified, he saw the murderer enter the house with the woman shortly before the killing. He noticed the man's face had a curiously blotched appearance similar to that of a sufferer from a secondary manifestation of a loathsome disease. Now, how many years have we all talked about Mr. Blotchy Face? I mean, whether you know whether he existed, whether he was the Ripper or whatever, I we have always missed on this little secondary point, which is that I, uh, did I just trigger that? <laughs> okay. okay, sorry. That's a blotchy face. That's a, that's a facial skin rash from uh, syphilis. Anyway, what I'm saying is we've we've nattered on about Mr. Blotchy Face for a long time, and we really never actually gotten to that second little point that people believed it was secondary syphilis. So anyhow, let's try to figure out how many people had this damn disease in 1888, and then consider treatment options a victim would have faced. Then we'll have a quick look at the canonical victims, I will alienate many of you, and finish with a look at some ripper suspects with a syphilis of Robert Smith, pay attention at the end. All right. All right, again this is another one of these wordy slides that uh, Katya warned me against uh, and I imposed my will on all right this actually was a bugger to try to develop and this is like you've got syphilis you're in 1888 what in God's name do you do and since no one talked about it you know, actually there's no one source that helpfully gives a guide like this now if you're if you are what I call solid citizen or wealthy you, you most likely you would go to a surgeon or a dermatologist and you would treat you privately. However, if you were really incapacitated, you might look to hospital, say. If you, were elected, if you were allowed to get into a, a hospital, uh, if the private care doctor lied about your condition, you might get a normal bed. Uh, he'd say you you know had particularly bad eczema or psoriasis. Uh, if not, then you would be in the lock ward of the hospital or they would treat you on an outpatient basis. If you were poor, you had two choices, the workhouse infirmary or a lock hospital. We're not gonna get much into the history of lock hospitals. Lock hospitals were specialized hospitals that treated only venereal diseases, and I will discuss why in a moment. But most of the C5 would have sought help in the workhouse infirmary. Uh, most likely as an outpatient, where they give you some pills and something to rub on yourself, if you needed hospitalization, they put you in the foul ward. And if a admitting uh, physician had mercy on you and you weren't too bad, or, or for that matter, they didn't really look too hard, you know, you go in with a broken arm, but you actually have, you know, tertiary syphilis. This, they're just going to put you in the general ward. All right, the lock hospital, as I said, is the venereal disease hospital. T- men were almost always treated as outpatients. A handful of women would be treated as inpatients. That's if you were young, and they felt you could be redeemed, and basically someone would vouch for your character, that you're a fallen woman, but you'd vowed after you were cured, you'd go out and sin no more. Uh, Suicide, very real option. And then we have what Mark Ripper himself has called the Mark Ripper option. Ignore it and carry on. Uh, this, this generally leads here to infection of loved ones uh, and we'll, enough there. Now, why aren't we going to spend a lot of time on the lock hospital? Because they've got a long and there's books been written on history of various lock hospitals and the like. Well, what I realized as I got into this is that while the British government smoked, spoke a good game about the lock hospital system, you'll take a look. This is the total number of beds Uh, that were available at the time for men in all of the United Kingdom. We were talking about 45 beds. Remember, I said most men would be treated as outpatients. However, you had 45 stinking beds in the whole country. Females, again, there were theoretically 400 beds in all of the UK, but since these were charitable organizations, they only had funds basically to make 230 of them available. So... My my honest opinion is like I'm not gonna waste a lot of time talking to you about the lock hospitals because we were on a lot of beds. Now this is the London lock in eighteen eighty and you can see again uh, outpatients, male outpatients, preponderantly male, you know, women, much lesser extent. And you, later on, you're gonna see that I use, make use of the six roughly six to one proportion men to women when I start making like very, you know, way out, whacked out uh, suppositions about infection rates. But, it, sorry, not a problem. Uh, and finally, uh, the, all right, and this is the this is the uh, state of uh, the hospitals in London in eighteen eighty eight with the total amount of beds being available. Now one of the things we don't have time to discuss mercifully is the contagious disease acts, and they had been repealed by the time before eighteen eighty eight. but what is interesting, if you had, say, been one of the unfortunates, in her, like, you know, we're meeting them where they women in their 40s in 1888. However, you know, what if they had tried to get into one of the lock hospitals in 1860, say, when they were younger and perhaps so? Well, what was happening was in various garrison towns, the UK government had decreed that prostitutes would be forcibly rounded up and put in hospital for up to nine months and treated against their will and if they had children they were in really serious trouble because they were literally taken from the street brought to the lock and if they had little ones out of luck kids went to the poor went to the the workhouse which for smaller kids who probably had congenital syphilis it was a death sentence the thing we need to know is that when there was an overflow of patients from the uh, lock hospitals in the garrison towns they shipped them to London so these beds, and it's, we're talking 50-odd beds, uh, they wouldn't even really have been available to the locals because the government basically requisitioned them. So that's that. And we're going to move into guesstimates of infection rates, which is where I start to take wild ass guesses at things. All right. The general belief at the time was about six times more women were infected than women. However, some of the statistics we have suggest otherwise. The Berlin number is a mind blower. As is Budapest. Budapest is interesting because in 1905, before the invention of the Wasserman test, they had six percent of the registered prostitutes noted as syphilitics After they could actually test people, the rate went to 33 percent. Now we're going to move on to uh, something that uh, Chris Scott, rest in peace, uh, has kindly provided us and. Uh, I believe it was Keith Richards said to Bill Wyman that there's only one way out of the Rolling Stones, and that was in a box. You can't even get out of reparology because they are still going to keep dragging you back. But uh, thank you. Uh, Chris Scott uh, laboriously, uh, and you won't really be able to read this, uh, laboriously transcribed all the patients that arrived at the Whitechapel Infirmary, predominantly in 1888. There's handful of patients from 85 and 89, but it's basically all 88. And uh, Gareth Williams put this into an Excel spreadsheet so we can start to glean some insight into conditions in the ground so long as we continue to bear in mind that tertiary syphilis would not be recognized, nor would a patient in the la- latency period. A chancre might be been incorrectly or outright ignored. As syphilis is called the great imitator as it presents so like many other illnesses, we need to cast a suspicious eye towards some of the diagnosis, even some that appear relatively benign, such as laryngitis. Uh, I don't know if you're gonna be able to make this out, but what I've done is I just had the uh, spreadsheet sorted by, for the 16 laryngitis patients, and I hope you can see that out of the 16, three of them died. This person was hospitalized for 45 days, 46 days, 34 days, 24, 44, and we've got, it looks to be like 17 days. And and I don't need to tell you that at the workhouse, if you showed up and I've got laryngitis, they're not necessarily going to give you a bed unless something really funky is going on. So I'm not going to claim that all laryngitis patients had syphilis. I'm just going to say that you have to think some of them were uh, cases of syphilitic laryngitis, which does exist, and look who we find here. We see Mary Connolly, Pearly Paul, laryngitis. Now, if you remember, a uh, Pearly Paul, they had trouble hearing her when she was ready to, you know, to ID the soldiers. So she's popped up at the, the infirmary with laryngitis. So interesting. Out of the there's a total of three thousand eight hundred and thirty-four patients. Roughly uh, 40, 39% of them were female, not a 50-50 split, which you might have expected. Out of the 1,492 women, 80 had their occupation listed as prostitute, approximately 5%. Obviously, we need to look, Asking at that, that. We were not here to discuss whether the hawkers and char women or seamstresses were actually full part-time prostitutes. There are precisely 43 cases of syphilis in the database, which represents only 1.1% of the patients. Of the 43 SIF cases, divided between 20 females and 23 men, 11 or 25% of the women who are listed as prostitutes were syphilitic. And you're going to turn around and say, rightfully, my God, Robert, you're telling us that this is an epidemic, yet here in Whitechapel, which would be ground zero for venereal disease, there's only 1% of the people listed as prostitutes. And I would turn around, well, they were reluctant to label as such, and then you would turn around, well, you data mining, you're very conveniently not seeing you you've seen things that aren't there. and whatever. As usual, the devil's in details are in the case of the Whitechapel Union Infirmary in the column entitled Causes. Because while there are only 43 cases clearly labeled as syphilis, there are 2,298 cases where one could reasonably question if the causes were symptoms of syphilis. As I've said, doctors, even the ones at the infirmary, were reluctant to label a patient syphilitic. So what we did was... We took. You're going to go to the. All right. Hopefully, this this you should be to read Okay. All right. I went through every one of the 2,000 plus cases that were questionable, and I rounded them up here. Like, for example, myalgia, which is you know obviously fibromyalgia. We're all familiar with myalgia. Back then was muscle aches, Uh, and you've got here my helpful comments about you know how like sort of how likely it would be to be syphilitic including things like skin eruptions which I say speaks for itself, swollen testicles, swollen glands, rheumatism. Interestingly, there is something known as syphilitic rheumatism and it's actually was actually fairly prevalent. So what we did was a who unfortunately couldn't be with us, the doctor, she and I went through all 2,000 plus cases and tried to make up a guesstimate as what percentage of them might have been from syphilis. So Things like the nervous diseases and things which look to be symptomatic of TABEs or GPI, we assigned a 30% probability that it was syphilis. Things like rheumatism, 3%. Uh, skin eruptions, 10%. Ulcers, and something called the Whitlow finger, which uh, when I went back early on, I was saying you catch it by shaking one's hands. Well, if you remember how physicians examined women's back in the old days, they would put their hands up their dresses without lifting things up and feel around, and they weren't wearing gloves, so it was perfectly positive. In fact, not uncommon for physicians to develop syphilis of the fingers. And there were six cases of that, and none of them were doctors. But we assigned 75% probability of the Whitlow finger to being syphilis. So what happened is when we did all that, that gave us approximately another 300 cases. I also removed from the database people that had been brought in dead. I removed infants, I removed people that come in that were pregnant, and to make a long story short, when you adjust for the various patients which gave signs that could be syphilis, as well as definitely syphilis, we come to about 7% of the Whitechapel infirmary cases being probable syphilitics, in my opinion. So that was effort number one to figure out what the hell was going on. Number two, uh, Sarah Wise was extraordinarily helpful to us uh, in providing us with some data as to how many lunatics there were in Great Britain and uh, Wales in 1888. Uh, Can you go back one slide? As you see, there's a total of roughly 83,000 people that were registered as lunatics in 1888. There's more women than men. Okay. The okay. uh, Whitechapel Society has graciously oh. granted us all our pretty and they've said they will, uh, in the coming issue, I'm going to be publishing the various calculations, so I will not torture you this morning with how I wound up with my calculations. Uh, there was the US UK government in 1907 did a survey of autopsies performed in asylums, and from that they had concluded sixty per 6 of the men had syphilis in asylums. That's men. They did not autopsy women. All right. I'm going to assume that eleven percent of the women had it, because that's one sixth of sixty-six percent, derives a weighted average calculation of thirty-six percent. All right, so I'm saying 36% of the patients would have general paralysis or tapes caused by syphilis. And what the rest of this is saying is basically we know it is analogous to saying, you have placed an order with me for sausage. I then can calculate from that how many pigs I need to raise we can actually tell how many primary syphilitics it would have taken to produce the roughly 30,000 neurosyphilitics that would have been in England and Wales in 1888 in asylums. And that doesn't include like the crazy ant in the attic or people acting eccentric. So to make a long story short, you work backwards, you come to roughly 4 million primary cases in 1888, Approximate population was 28.5 million, or 13.9% of the population would have had primary syphilis in 88, which blew my mind. And then, finally, with respect to fun with numbers, we... 7% from the Whitechapel Infirmary, 14% from our calculations, and the Royal Commission on Venereal Diseases in 1916 concluded that the percentage of pe- people with syphilis was not below 10% of the entire population. We're not talking about men, we're not talking about sailors, we're not talking about soldiers, we're talking about every man, woman, and child. So this, w- the numbers are gargantuan and we never talk about them in the All right. Yeah, I, I'm seeing it everywhere myself these days. All right. This is also going to be in the Whitechapel Journal. Uh, while this looks truly really terrifying at ten o'clock in the morning, this is nothing more than the the formula in which casinos are built, and you can think of it as playing sexual roulette. The turns is like if you've got it, you, if you're having sex with someone who's infected, and you have the more times you have sex with them, the more chance you are to have the ball show up in zero. So, going to give you two quick examples. Uh, I'm making up an example of a hypothetical woman in a high-end brothel. I'm saying that there is one-half of 1% of a chance that her john is infected with syphilis. Remember the earlier numbers that are actually dealing like around 10%. I'm making it one-half of 1% because not everybody who's infected with syphilis is infectious. All right. I'm going to assume that she doesn't have a whole lot of sex and therefore doesn't have a whole lot of uh, vaginal abrasions, and so I'm saying the probability of transmission that the jaw is affected 20%. This woman turns one trick a day for a year, after one year of being in the profession, she's got a roughly 70% chance of being disease-free. However, three years later, odds have lowered to uh, one in three chance that she's non-sipplytic. Now, this is where it gets really brutal, because this is what I am going to say is this canonical five. And there are women that basically had no choice but to turn multiple tricks a day. They turn tricks to eat, they turn tricks to have a place to sleep, and and, and alcohol, if they could afford it. Uh, I'm saying there's a 5% chance that her, John, is infected. That's being rather conservative, because... You know, sailors, soldiers, you know, remember early on when I was babbling, I said that there was an article from the uh, Illustrated Police News that said half of the soldiers and half of the sailors had it. I'm saying that it's a 5% chance that her John has it. She's having a lot of sex. She's got abrasions the transmission rate is up to forty percent. Just so you know today the general general regarded transmission rate is about sixty to seventy percent if you meet someone with an active infection and you have sex with them. So that's also being conservative. I'm saying three tricks a day for a year, the probability of being disease free is infinitesimal. And finally, just to beat this into submission, same assumptions, but I'm asking the question, how many tricks does one of the canonical five have to turn before there was a 50-50% chance that she was infected? The answer is only 34 tricks in (coughs) Whitechapel in 1888. The canonical five, frankly, didn't stand a chance. All right. Now we're going to move into... There's something really charming. There's the the Lancet, the British medical... uh, Used to you know, have, a, have a rather <laughs> profound and sexist attitude. They're always campaigning to have everyone uh, inspected. All right, I'm going to try and move real fast here. The victims. Polly Nichols, well, we don't know a whole lot about her, except for the fact that it appears that she indeed turned a lot of tricks a day. Liz Stride. Right. Oh. Some people are not going to pretty care for this, but I would ask. Is this possibly a gumma? I remember, one of her nicknames is Mother Gum. She was hospitalized twice for juvenile the- diseases, and she did have a stillborn child. Just something to think about. Catherine Eddowes. Catherine Eddowes, I'm just going to say here, the, the, Don Rumbleau, Lee Jack the Ripper, you can read it. Severing the tip of Edo's nose was a murderous way of braining the woman, true or not, is siphotic. I'm just trying to give you a thought. The most intriguing of all, however, is uh, Annie Chapman. Oh, sorry, this is Mary Kelly. I won't dwell long on it. What I find fascinating about this statement after studying this disease for almost two years is that so many of the top hospitals and treatment centers were actually in France, not in England. She'd been in a high-end brothel. For whatever reason, she went with a gentleman who took her to France Half the patients that were being treated for juvenile disease in France couldn't stand the regime because of what I said, your hair falls out, teeth falls out, and she didn't remain long. She said she did not like the part, and whether it was the part or the purpose, I can't say. I find it fascinating that she's not making, you know, a gentleman took me to France, we had a lovely time, we drank champagne. It's actually, it's actually quite matter of fact. And if you remember, Mary Kelly was seen with a blotchy-faced companion with a pail of beer. All right, Annie Chapman. Annie Chapman. Evidence of disease in the membranes of the brain. And as I said, they would never come out and said that the poor woman had syphilis. Annie, you know, had a couple of violent outbursts. And this is actually something I find extremely intriguing because it did appear that she picked up medication at the casual ward. As we know, there's no record of her having been admitted, but there were pills found on her. And more of interest to me is the lotion found in her room may have been brought up there at this time. You'll notice they're not identifying the lotion. So they're going to the trouble of telling us there was lotion. They don't tell what it was. Was it mercury? Okay, moving on. This is what we would call the typical pattern of uh, births for women with syphilis. Miscarriages, birth, and children that are born alive but uh, don't live long, then apparently child, healthy children but having congenital syphilis, and then after five, six, seven years, healthy children. Circumstantial evidence shows that any Chapman may well have become infected with syphilis in the early 1870s. She had her first surviving child, Emily Ruth, in June 1870, and we can mark the birth event. He died of meningitis at age 12. Her other successful births occurred in June of 1873, Anna Georgina, and in November 1880, John Alfred. These details of Annie Chapman's biography are probably familiar to many of you. John Alfred was a congenital cripple. But we should note that we have here the sort of gap in the reproductive schedule which we saw uh, in the earlier slide. From June of 1873, when she was 32, to about February 1880, when she was 38, Annie Chapman, a married woman in Victorian England, failed to give birth to a healthy child. This gap of nearly 70 calendar years is typical of the syphilitic pattern of infant mortality. In 2003, Mary Jane Kelly and the victims of Jack the Ripper, Neil Sheldon showed that Annie had another child in July 1879. This was Miriam Lily Chapman, who died in October 1879, aged about two and a half months after suffering convulsions. We can also reveal for the first time, courtesy of Mark Ripper's research, that Annie had a child in late April 1876. Georgina Chapman died aged 11 days on May 5, 1876, also from convulsions. And you can see that the calendar forms a pattern of successful births giving way to unsuccessful births, eventually giving way to a final successful birth. This is classic syphilis and suggests that Anna Chapman acquired her infection shortly after the birth of her second child in 1873. It took about seven years to work its way out of her reproductive schedule. In a letter dated April 28, 1889, her sister indicated that, in her opinion, Annie's alcoholism had affected her children's health. She has had eight children, she wrote, and six of these have been victims to the curse. The other five children enumerated in the letter were, until recently, all lost to us. But Neil Sheldon has restored little Miriam to Annie's story, and we have restored Georgina. The other three children were probably all lost between 1874 and 1880 and were probably stillborn and therefore unrecorded by the state. Medical science also provides us with an explanation of this cluster of infant deaths. William Chapman might have been right to say that a curse had fallen on Annie's lost children, but she was too keen to name it as alcohol. In fact, she can reasonably ascertain that it was syphilis, which annoyed a terrible hole in the family tree of the Chapmans. All right. How are we doing on time? What's that? Okay. Neil Cream. Uh, we have to, we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna disperse with uh, Tumblety, I think. All right. Tumblety died of uh, aortic valve disease, and he peddled mercury you know, substitutes for mercury. All right. Thomas Neal Cream. Obviously, he's a horrible Ripper suspect. But what I find interesting about him is he had a desire to rid society of women who are in a condition which they are a menace to society. Uh, he. Had a medical degree from London, he was an abortionist, he consorted prostitutes, he poisoned his wife, for which she did not go to prison. He gave strychnine to a woman he was having an affair with so she could poison her husband. He did go to prison for that. And what I find fascinating is that as soon as he got out of prison, he had like a bat out of hell for London. And what he started to do was approach prostitutes. Handsome pills, which he said would protect them against the disease, and, in fact, he was giving them overdoses of strychnine. He killed four prostitutes in less than a year before he basically called the police's attention to them through a letter-writing campaign and some individual comments to the detective. I'm interested in Cream as a potential syphilitic seeking revenge on the class of women who are responsible for his disease. As I've said, lousy ripper suspect, but perhaps just perhaps he's the type of man we should be looking for, obviously substituting the use of a knife, for poison. And finally, that's my man.
0: <laughs>
2: All right, real fast David Letterman style. The top 10 reasons we believe James Maverick was a Nero split. Now, it doesn't mean he was the Ripper, but we've always wondered if you wondered how some crazed person wrote the diary and got into battle crease, well, Sir James was probably mad as a hatter in 1888. Maverick expressed a fear of paralysis as early uh, from its four four days in the 1880s. Number two, Madam in a cat house that he used to go to testify for several years, Maybrook came in two to three times a week and took arsenic two to three times an evening. Arsenic, treatment for, for syphilis. And remember from the earlier numbers, if you have sex at that with prostitutes a the amount of time, it's good luck not having. His children arguably all died insane. Flo was a cat woman. That's not necessarily insanity, but close enough. Uh, he had another wife. He was a bigamist. She died insane, and his ch- uh, son James died when he drank some cyanide, thinking it was just a glass of water. Gladys's home was stuffed with enough medications to not the pharmacy. Uh, all right, this is, the, this is the money shot, as we say. Okay is doctors prescribed for him at one time or another all the major medicines used to treat syphilis. Arsenic, strychnine, noxomalaminica, hydrate of potash, bromide of potassium, which is used when your system has become insensitive to iodates. Plumber's pill, which are Calomel, which contained mercury, and antimony sulfide with what's called holy wood. Fowler's solution, which is arsenic deserved in, dissolved in potash, bismuth, which is another heavy metal, and compounds sulfur, lodges, which you would give if a patient had developed mercury tolerance. One of the physicians described Mabrick's tongue as simply filthy, which is symptomatic of heavy metal overdoses. This is what they gave him. That's what you would give a tertiary syphilitic in 1888 or 1889. He complained of attacks of pain from the side to side of his head, which, if you remember early on, we were showing you the signs, one of the signs of Tabes is lightning pains. And this it caught my eye. Florence told one of the doctors that she thought the illness was some irregularities in eating or drinking before marriage. Uh, okay, well, if you just take out that eating or drinking, you realize what she's really saying is that irregularities before marriage... One, uh, Dr. Carter, his physician, testified the problem with some grave indiscretion of diet away from home. All right. Remember what I was talking about code talking? Okay. This ain't about food, people. All right. And this is lovely. A doctor in London, now why not in Liverpool, testified Maybrick called him several times for psoriasis of the feet and prescribed solution of arsenic. Told him if he did not continue the medicine, he might have paralysis. This ain't about... Psoriasis of the feet. This is, by the way, uh, secondary syphilitic lesions of the foot. Finally, uh, when Sir Jim went into his death spiral, flow first call was to ask his brother send his friend, his brother's friend, Dr. McChain. We believe this is Dr. McChana, who worked with, we worked at the Liverpool Lock Hospital. Again, the Lock Hospital specialized in venereal disease. So the first call out was for a doctor from the Lock Hospital. And I think this is hopefully the last point. The uh, very first witness called for the defense was Dr. Roden McNamara, who was also the Liverpool lock. He testified, yes, I am quite familiar with giving syphilitics heavy doses of arsenic, and I don't kill them. Maybrick didn't die of arsenic either. Oh, all right, here we go, extra treat. All right, PM doctors went out to discuss venereal disease for a gentleman and a possible murder victim. It just wasn't done. However... Maybrick's postmortem may have shown gamata in his stomach and ossification of the ribs. Ossification can be a precursor for necrosis. So the postmortem is questionable. And one final thing, and we're done. There is the small matter of the diary and the watch.
1: <laughs> Sir
2: Jam was batshit crazy in 1889. All right. What I would like you to take away from our talk, there was an epidemic, both in the upper class and among the uneducated working poor. Treatment options were You're you're (laughs) fucked. It is highly likely that Jack's victim had syphilis. It is equally likely if Jack was a steady customer, he had it as well. We should perhaps revisit the old theories about revenge over contracting syphilis as a motive. Syphilis was everywhere and it was nowhere. You will not find a sentence of it anywhere in Victorian literature and it was considered a major faux pas. To put it on desk, it was not mentioned in polite societies, nor ever again at a Ripper conference. Thank you. <laughs> ah. dirty words. Yes, yes, yes. Now, now ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think you will all agree that that was very
1: stimulating. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear you've all given him a great big clap. And uh, having heard from a,
2: a very nice young lady who's in, at the conference this weekend that she was suffering from an irregularity of her diet last night, it's good to see her in the audience today. I won't name Becky. OK. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Robert is very happy to take some questions over coffee. I hope you all enjoyed your breakfasts. Well done for not revisiting it in reverse. And thank you. And come and join us in 15 minutes for some more. Thank you very
0: much. And that was Robert Anderson's opening Pandora's box, at in Whitechapel, 1888. A talk that he gave to the Whitechapel Society 1888 conference in Salisbury just this past month. And I want to thank Robert Anderson for being so generous in allowing me to release his talk as an episode of RipperCast. I think it's really good that we can have folks who aren't able to attend the conferences like me who lives across the Atlantic Ocean be given the opportunity to hear some of the things and hear what kind of goes on and, and listen to some of the talks. So I hope that it really did benefit some of the people who were unable to attend to hear Robert's talk. And I also hope that those of you listening who were able to go to Salisbury enjoyed listening to Robert's talk one more time. So again, uh, thank you very much to Robert Anderson for giving all of us the opportunity to share in his conference speech. And that wraps it up for this episode of RipperCast. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and I thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.